air, airplanes are a lot easier to understand than most of the current autonomous systems. And most of the current autonomous systems are not yet complicated enough to deploy. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. Sounds about right. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer, the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Kirsten Korosek and Damon Labyrinth. Today we are talking to Stefan Seltz-Oxmacher, of, uh, formerly of the automated trucking startup Starsky. Starsky recently failed to raise a Series B round and went out of business. Um, and Stefan has written a blog post about his experience and what he's learned about the autonomous drive space. And he has joined us today for a discussion of these topics. Hey, Stefan, how's it going? <laughs> oh, good. How are you guys doing? <laughs> We're doing good. I, you are a, a really good writer. Um, I've been, if, if you have any interest I, in getting I, into the media side of this, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm pretty sure people would be glad to have you. I, I would say I'm incredibly insecure about my writing, so it means a lot for people who professionally write to say things like that. I, uh, I, my, my mom growing up was a, an editor of a magazine. So my like my sixth or seventh grade papers would be copy edited like they were going to press an ENR, <laughs> uh, which uh, does not make you full of self esteem when it comes to your own writing. Yeah, but that's that's actually really good. Like, yeah, yeah I think the best the best writers are are like always struggle with with a certain amount of insecurity, painfully insecure. Yeah. No, I mean like that that blog. I mean, were you expecting that blog post to blow up the way it did? No, by no by no means. I mean, I thought. I mean, I was, ho I was hoping like some people read it um, and I was hoping some people were like, yeah, this is a good idea. Um, uh, what, what surprised me was, I mean, one of the comments I saw on, on Hacker News was this is, a, this is probably the best technical analysis of like the, the limitations of supervised machine learning. And this guy isn't even technical. It's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> nice. That's me. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, what, what were you trying to accomplish with it? Like, what was the thought when you sat down and, and wrote this? Yeah. Um, Cause I know, yeah, I know that you've had, there's been a little time since sort yep. of, I think the inevitable have, or, you know, what happened happened and you, mm -hmm. you took some time. So, so talk us through sort of that process of, of why you wrote it and what you were trying to accomplish with it. Yeah. So um, the first, the absolute first version of it was super pet, not, not even petty. It was super, you know, screw these people, screw these people, screw these people. Which you know, like, probably wouldn't have elicited as positive of a response, nor nor would be as truthful, nor as good. But super cathartic, really, really yeah, cathartic. incredibly, <laughs> incredibly cathartic. Which is why it looks so good on my Google Docs. <laughs> Part of what prompted me to write it, there were there's a big problem in the overall industry that essentially most people know, like that that S curve thing. A lot of people, a lot of people know all the evidence for it. They've just never thought about it as an S curve. Um, and once you say that to people in the industry of like, oh, so if it works like this, then really it's an S curve. They're like, oh yeah, shit. Um, like it's this like very quick, like whatever. Um, what's hard about it though, is that S curve didn't really apply to Starsky. Um, and a, a weird spot that I'm in is I still like pretty thoroughly believe the Starsky approach is the approach that can work. Um, I'm just kind of at this point hoping somebody else takes it up and, and makes it actually happen. 
or we won't see autonomous vehicles or unmanned autonomous vehicles anytime soon. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that that S curve. So like yeah. what what yeah. what were you describing there? And and then I, I definitely um why didn't why why is it important and, and like why didn't it really apply to Starsky, but it's important anyway? Like that's that's a really interesting part of it. But let's let's just talk about the the S curve itself first. What were you describing there? So one of the first, like the one of the first things that uh, led me to that outcome was the was was reflecting on the fact that your your training get data gets more and more expensive the the further along your your ML thing is, and I actually um, you know I, I didn't have access I it wasn't my chart to share but I was talking about this with a guy in a completely different realm of AI and and as a you know hey I had this kind of funny feeling that. It gets exponentially more expensive to improve ML systems as time goes on. It's like, oh, I have proof for that. You want to see? And uh, essentially what he did is he looked at, uh, by looking at public documents, you can figure out how much Amazon spending on Alexa, Google spending on Google Assistant, uh, and uh, whichever, uh, an Apple spending on Siri. And what you can see is an exponential increase in the cost per new skill added. Oh, Interesting. Huh. So, like, when it was just okay. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say anything. Everyone <laughs> thinks. Well, I'm a fifth um, member of this conversation. <laughs> uh, so, so when you like when it was just play music, that was that was easy enough. But now that it's you know turn on the lights, do this, turn turn on that, it's getting exponentially more expensive. Uh, and that's that's kind of a weird thing. We also noticed that even just. You know, we used task-specific machine learning models, so a model that only did lane detection, a model that only did object detection, whereas what a lot of teams are doing is they're doing these these far more robust models that see the lanes, judge where the vehicles are, judge what their trajectories are going to be, and they just keep on pumping more and more information into it. Uh, the problem being that if the, the costs are getting bigger and bigger, more and more expensive without without going anywhere. So for a while, I was playing along with this exponential curve and trying to figure out, well, when does that actually... Like, how do you even chart what goes on the axes? And I, I stumbled across this idea of logarithmic growth, which is the exact opposite of exponential growth. Mm-hmm. And when exponential growth becomes logarithmic growth, you see an S-curve. And that's exactly what's happened in, in ML. Uh, that's exactly what happens if you want things to be really, really accurate. Um, a, uh, an, a, a use case that my, my, my co-founder had was like... Uh, we the Facebook ability to auto tag photos and recognize who's in a photo. Um, cool, it works ninety percent of the time. That's great. It's a great party trick. Now, ninety percent of the time would not be acceptable if uh, a drone was launching a missile at everyone who had the face of a terrorist, uh, because a lot of people would, you know, the, the consequences would be a lot higher, and that wouldn't be acceptable. Right. Uh, and and getting to that hundred percent accuracy is the thing that costs all of the money. Right, which is why you can see teams like Comma AI performing nearly as well as teams like Tesla Autopilot. And where where did the costs come from? Just really quick, you you, you mentioned cost. Yeah. I think people don't think about cost in in data acquisition or or as a, yeah. as a function of ML development. So, like, where are those costs coming from, and and why did they go up so high? So, even in terms of Starsky's labeled data, uh, we were spending about fifty thousand dollars a month. Uh, and that was, so that was close to, that was, that was somewhere that was that often, that was often hovering between 10 and 5% of our burn was just in labeling data. And then, then other costs is engineering. Right. So is that a, uh, the cost is attributed to 
your employees working on it or are you contracted out with companies like scale AI for data set? I'd say, I'd say all of that together. Um, like the, the general thing about logarithmic growth is it's more and more effort. An easy way to measure effort is cost, but some of that cost is we're paying contractors to label data. Some of that cost is we're having engineers work on ML things. The, the problem with supervised ML is after you get to a certain point, it gets more and more expensive for less and less progress. Um, diminishing returns, right? Yep. So what's, what's, what's interesting is like you could draw the conclusion that super accurate supervised ML has negative economies of scale. And, and the problem with, with driving as a specific autonomous driving as a specific application for ML is that you need to have that safety critical level of reliability. Right. Well, it depends on what you're. I mean, depends on what you're building, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and with the level of that safety, uh, of that safety reliability can be different depending on how you architecture your system or architecture system, not architecture system. And, and sort of the more you rely on that machine learning, the more reliable it needs to be, right? Uh, whereas if you if you're sort of able to architect something with more deterministic sensors, things like that. You can also get around it if you have lower SLAs. Mm. So a part of the flaw of everyone working on uh, robo-taxis is we have really high expectations for how an Uber performs, right? Like if you're, if you're taking an Uber to the airport, you, you know, you want to be there in 30 to 45 minutes. Um, If it like, if the robot has a fit pulls over and waits for six hours, like you're, you're going to be in a bad mood. Uh, whereas in trucking that's acceptable like in trucking the slas are so bad that okay if we can measure how good this this ml model is performing and we're seeing it's getting below a certain level then we can pull over the next uh the next rest area yeah which is just a a get out of jail free card you don't have if you're carrying humans when did you start thinking about the s-curve and actually working on it in the in the time frame of you know, the, the operations of the company? Um, so it became clear to, like, a lot of the bigger limitations of autonomy became pretty clear to us uh, mid-last, or not, not limitations of autonomy, limitations of supervised ML became pretty clear to us halfway through last year. Um, some of the things we noticed, uh, for example, are that uh, your your data accuracy has to improve pretty rapidly to keep on improving your models. Um, so, as a, as an interesting thing, as, uh, as a part of that, um, if you were if you're training if your model is doesn't exist and your data is fifty percent accurate, okay, your your model can become fifty percent accurate. Um, if your uh, if your model is fifty percent accurate, you gave data that's seventy five percent accurate. Cool, you can quickly jump. Like you can, you can become more ac- that that data will make you more accurate. At a certain point, you need data that is a hundred percent accurate to improve, and that gets incredibly expensive to put in. Um, one of the things that we found uh, with our fifty thousand dollar a month labeling budget, we typically balance it between three different vendors, and one of one of the vendors who we had spent a quarter of a million dollars on data from, the uh, their average accuracy was seventy five percent. And we removed all of that data from our model, and our models improved, which was a which is a weird thing. Yeah. And of course, we could have spent another tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars improving that data and getting it to 95, 98 percent accuracy, uh, just weeding out the bad data. 
But the the fact that literally a quarter of a million dollars was making our model worse by existing in it uh, was a thing that made us realize, huh, there's something problematic here. And I'd also go on to say that since most of the labeling companies uh, only promise an SLA of something like 97, 98% accuracy, uh, either they're assuming that the company is going to do a whole bunch of additional QA work on the back end, or like at the time when we realized that, which was probably early last year, our thought process was everyone else just might not be accurate enough to realize this problem yet. So how much of the work's... And, that, and, that, and that, that's probably just because they're doing a whole lot of things with their models as opposed to single things, which... Right, right. So how much of the, you know, when you're talking about the SLAs and everything else, how much of that was done in the real world? How much of that was on simulation? Um, we weren't a heavy simulation company. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the simulation stuff that we did uh, was not the visually exciting simulation that uh that people love to write about not like not like doing stuff in the matrix it was more of uh we're telling this node that's getting information that looks like this is it staying between these lines on a on a graph chart gotcha uh, was the type of simulation that we did um but so most of the stuff that we actually measure and think about would be would be in the real world mm-hmm. with a lot of that type of testing beforehand is I mean, is if if you were to go back and do it again, I mean, would you put more emphasis on simulation? It is something that I, I feel like has sort of become more prominent over the last couple of years, particularly last mm-hmm. year. Um, I, so is is that something? Do you do you think you underestimated the importance of simulation? I it wouldn't surprise me if that trend towards heavier simulation is a realization that logarithmic growth means you know, the cheapest ways possible we can get more, way more testing in is our things we now have to invest in because of inc- how incredibly expensive the, um, the real world is. Yeah. So I want to, I want to get back to, to what we were discussing earlier, like this blog post, I think one of the things that maybe people didn't understand about it was that it was sort of a mix of like, it seemed to me anyway, to be a mix of Starsky specific lessons mm-hmm. and then just sort of more observations about the broader space. Yep. And, and you sort of, you mentioned that, that, that S curve issue in particular was not maybe like the most important thing for Starsky per se, but it's more yep. of like the big lesson for the, for the space. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So when you think about an autonomous vehicle, um, there's, uh, it, it has to perceive the world. Uh, it has to make decisions somehow and it has to then act on it. It has to, you know, issue controls to the, to the broader vehicle. Um, the, the thing that most, uh, so Starsky's religious uh, obsession was getting the person out of the vehicle. Everything else didn't matter, right? Like any, any like cool technologies that we could apply didn't matter. Um, you know, neat things that would make us feel like cool engineers didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is can we get the person out of the truck? And the easiest way to do that is if you completely don't care about the building an autonomous decision maker and you build a, a, a statistically safe perception system, a statistically safe uh, control system, and you use a remote person as that decision maker. And that's why we were able to take the person out of the vehicle. Most autonomous teams are primarily at this point obsessed with building a really cool autonomous decision maker. And that's the thing that's being limited by the S-curve. Yeah. So um, there are there are whole business models that only make sense if you can build that decision maker and prove it to be statistically safe. Um, and if you can't, then that if then you're then you're out of business. Yeah. What are those business models that would potentially make sense then? 
Um, so for robo taxi to work, you both need a radical decrease in the cost of sensors and you probably need that autonomous decision maker, um, that needs to probably work all the time. Um, with, uh, with trucking, for example, like if you are, and also if you're going to license the technology to others, you probably need a higher level of autonomy, um, with trucking as the operator, we thought we could we could take over the market and have a fifty percent margin uh, with a hundred percent one to one remote supervision. Was was how much that didn't matter if we if we didn't need remote supervision on the highway, our margin would jump up to like something like sixty percent. And if we perfected all of level five autonomy, we'd only squeeze out another like twenty five basis points to one percent of profit. So it wasn't worth going for that. It just yeah, like never was worth it. Um, the, uh, automated billing, uh, for trucking loads is worth more than level five autonomy. <laughs> I mean, that's, this is kind of what I've always really has attracted me to Starsky and, and what you guys were doing was that it was like, it wasn't, you know, uh, machine learning has made these advances. And so we can, you know, let's, let's, let's do something really cool and really ambitious. It was, it was focused on a singular problem, which is it's hard to recruit truck drivers. Yep. They can't go home to their families every night. Like you've been on the show before we discussed this a bunch yep. and like that. And, and to me, one of the things that I've been puzzling through sort of thinking about your post and, and everything that's happened and, and sort of what's going on in the space right now is like, to me, my instinct is, is, you know, the companies that are focused on solving a specific problem seem better positioned uh, than those that are sort of like, you know, let's, let's drink from this technical fire hose and, and really like, you know, solve the, the big problem so that we can then, and then once we do that, we'll just apply it to all these spaces uh, theoretically. And, and, you know, um, and the business part of this has really come into focus a lot. So I'm, I'm yeah. so, so to me, what I grapple with a little bit here is how is it that, that you guys were so focused on, on having a business and, and solving a singular problem. Uh, and yet, and yet you still had such a hard time. I think most of the Silicon Valley investor community hasn't doesn't really understand this space. Um, and VCs are in this weird position where they can't really afford to admit they don't know stuff. Um, so as a result, like they're very, they can be, and it's a tight knit community. So they can be susceptible. They can be particularly susceptible to group thing. Um, like if, if you're a v- if I'm a VC and I ask you to explain some technical concept and I and I ask you five times details on it because I really don't get it, um, you might think I'm an idiot and take money from Kirsten over taking money from me. Uh, and where because all Kirsten did was like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, hmm, that's okay. Makes sense. What about this one thing? Cool. Okay. And you'll then because Kirsten didn't didn't expose herself to not know what you're talking about. Um, you'll think she's the better investor and you'll take her money. Uh, I, I think investors didn't really understand this space. They, they, they kind of drank too much of the Kool-Aid of general autonomy is going to work very quickly. Mm-hmm. So then when we were pitching people, uh, part of it was, well, your competitors have raised $200 million. Why can't they do this? Uh, a, a frequent question would be, well, so what if someone else just completely adopted your business model in Teleop? Like, wouldn't they crush you with their, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of funding? And now, since being on the other side of the table of going and talking to those teams, I think, no, they absolutely seem disinterested in, in uh, picking a particular product to go build. And hmm. they seem religiously opposed to Teleop. That's why they won't. 
the uh, I think the the big checks scared a lot of uh, investors off from investing in smaller, more focused competitors. And as the the whole industry started to not make progress, it, a lot of investors switched their posture from this is the future to you know we want to wait and see when people are act regularly hauling people with no person in the vehicle. And there's a lot in between that. <laughs> to yep. Say the least. yep. Yep. Like there was an investor who before a Series B said, um, the whole thing that's going to make my decision for me is whether or not you, I think you can take the person from the actual vehicle. And if I have a 75% confidence in that, I'll invest. A uh, day later, I sent him a video, the video of us driving on the closed highway on man. Hey, this, this is closed highway. Well, that looks like simulation. A month later, I sent him the video of public highway on man. And he was like, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. But really, the thing for me would be once you have 100 vehicles and you're operating at scale and you can show the unit economics. Like, what? <laughs> so you, you mentioned investors in, in your blog post and you say, it took me way too long to realize that VCs would rather a $1 billion business with a 90% margin than a $5 billion business with a 50% margin. Mm-hmm. Even if capital requirements and growth are the same. Like that yep. seems to be another recurring, not just in the autonomy space, um, yep. but, but all over um, and, and it may, it seems like it kind of, uh, incentivizes VCs to focus on the wrong thing. Like I understand why they do it, but I don't know. T- um, the magic of software companies is that they have really, really low marginal cost. And like the, the cost of setting up a dating website that has a uh, thousand users a month, it are not much, uh, lower than a dating website that has a million users per month. And, you know, that that second, uh, the the rest of those users are almost all profit. So that's that's what that's what VCs really like are these high margin businesses where you build the thing, it basically works by Series A, by Series B you have early unit economics, and then you're off to the races, and it's and it's money to to make that growth better or more profitable or or whatever. That's the model that they really know and like. It's all based around a software model. Yep. And I mean, I, I like to look back at like some of the start the hardware startups that have launched just in the last, say, five years, not related even to this space, but you know, you've got Anki as a good example, right? Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of other hardware startups that have failed in the meantime because again, they're all taking VC money and the VCs are expecting that level of return that you just don't get from physical production. Yep. And I mean, I think the if I if I had been more disingenuous and said, yeah, we're going to operate to start off with, but then we'll we'll go be we'll go license it to people, that might have helped me out. If I had and I had a, a really good CFO candidate in November actually say, even if it's not what you intend to do, that's what your pitch needs to be, which mm. you know would have been good advice twelve months earlier. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but but still, it's kind of a troubling reflection on this system, right? Exactly. Like that that yeah. you're incentivized to not be honest about what you. Really to I mean, I think part of the underlying problem are is that there aren't very many successful robotics companies. So the playbook isn't incredibly well written. Uh, and I am very confident that to be a successful robotics company, you almost definitely have to be the operator. And that, and, and that then means that there are fewer places where robotics makes sense uh, for quite some time uh, because of that. Like we're... Robots have really weird limitations, are really bad at things that people think uh, should be easy for them, uh, which means the only people who can possibly wrap their head around that on a case-by-use-case case basis are the people who build the actual system. Do you think then as a result that there's this limited place for robotics right now that 
areas like autonomous yard trucks and those type of, is that a better or not better, but safer, maybe is a better word, place for robotics companies to put their efforts and a greater chance of their survival? Or are there still problems with that model? Um, yeah, there, I think there's problems with that model in that. So uh, a way that I think about the current state of autonomous robotics is, and, and kind of robots in general, the the issue with people understanding their limitation, I describe as an issue of a lack of empathy or robotic empathy. And a, and a way to wrap your head around what robots can and can't do or where they're at is like they're somewhere on the autistic spectrum. <laughs> Uh, and I actually don't even mean that as a slur against people on that spectrum. I mean that as a, like, uh, there are people on the spectrum who are incredibly th- good at things that neuronormative people find troubling. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and if you think about that from a robot's perspective, that might be driving 25 hours straight on a highway. Yeah. That's a really hard thing for a neuronormative person to do. Um, or, uh, or picking, you know, picking something up and putting it back down uh, for 25 hours straight, really hard thing for a neuronormative person to do. When it comes to robots, we seem to see that, think, oh my gosh, they're so good at this thing that I'm bad at. Of course they can do this thing that is easy for me. Uh, Which is, you know, driving through an intersection with a bunch of pedestrians walking in it, figuring out that birds sitting on the street are not an, an, an immovable object that you have to slam on the brakes for. Um, all those things seem very easy for people and impossible for robots. And, and most people can't really understand why, uh, because of that, that's one of the big reasons why, uh, robotics companies have to be the operator, because especially if you're dealing in a, if you're selling your robots in a space where people aren't super familiar with robots, they really don't understand why you can drive on the highway all night, but you can't drive the next day in a light dust storm. Uh, the, in terms of the, in, in general, similar to people who are on the spectrum, you know, they might be, they might seem to be working really well and all of a sudden they're overwhelmed or there's something that's not going right and they just have to stop as a safety precaution. For robotics to be a good business, it has to be in a place where those limitations are okay because the, the demand for a solution is so incredibly strong. Which means that something like yard jockeys, um, like truck drivers in, in, tr- in truck yards, they're typically not paid well enough for it to be a nice solution to have this big expensive piece of machinery that breaks sometimes for weird reasons that nobody gets. Yeah. That I, that comparison with, with autism is, is really powerful for me. I, I used to be a caregiver. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time around, around people with various kinds of autism. And, and I mean, yeah, like when, when you've spent time with someone who, you know, could not read the most basic emotional response in another person, but you tell them, you know, your birthday and they'll tell you what day of the week you were born in a second. Yep. It's like, yep. it, it makes sense. How come you can do that, but you can't understand my facial expressions. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really, yeah. Things that we don't even have to do consciously, like they couldn't do with any amount of conscious effort. Yep. Um, and yeah, no, I think that's, that's something that's, that's really important. And, and you mentioned trucking in the blog post too, as one of those areas uh, where you kind of have to be an operator yeah, uh, or at least that was your 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 thesis. Do you, it, yeah, do you still believe that? I mean, do you do you think it would be possible to educate uh, trucking companies to the point where where they could understand why they would buy these things, be able to operate them, all that kind of stuff? Or is that just still too too hard? It, it would be really hard. It would be like if we had perfected level five. Honestly, I think it would have taken us two years per initial deployment 
And those initial deployments would have been in the low hundreds of trucks. And they, those v- systems would probably almost immediately be stress tested by people who tried to use them unsafely. <laughs> and like not tried to use them unsafely to get at us, but just because the rules of what the systems can and cannot do are too complicated. What do you think about the business model that has been kind of floating around autonomous vehicle companies for a while where you have, and not just for trucking, you have mm-hmm. the company that builds the full stack mm-hmm. and um, and then you might have the end user, let's say, or the company that wants to have their name on it um, and they want mm-hmm. it to be. But then there's like this potentially, and sometimes it's overlapping, third party that is going to be doing the fleet management and the operations. Mm-hmm. And that would be their expertise. Yep. Do you think that that could work? Or do you think that, that there's just too many parties involved at that point? So if trucking companies were as technically sophisticated, and this, I, I always, I always um, feel funny saying this phrase, um, if trucking companies were as technically sophisticated as airlines, um, that could happen. But they're they're not currently. Right. But I, you know, it's always funny to think of uh, American Airlines or United as a technically sophisticated organization. I mean, it is. Uh, they maintain very complicated pieces of equipment, right. uh, and then they lose. And then they use it to lose your uh, your luggage. Right. Uh, but um, in a in a future world with really really technically sophisticated uh, operators, yes, you could have a separate company be the operator. The problem is there's a there's a long way before then. Air, airplanes are a lot easier to understand than most of the current autonomous systems, and most of the current autonomous systems are not yet complicated enough to deploy. <laughs> that's that's really funny. Sounds about right. Is this related to the sort of black box issue with with ML that that you know is that where that complexity comes from? Is it just is it just the complexity of all the different sensors and all that kind of stuff? Or is there a fundamental aspect of autonomous systems that will always sort of have some level of, of hyper complexity to the point where you need like really top flight talent to understand when something goes wrong, like what went wrong? In, I mean, I think in general, any new space is more complicated than an older space, um, an older, more established space. Uh, the, an interesting thing for us uh, in trying to, in, in building out like a safety team, uh, was that the many of the safety people from the automotive or even the aviation world? Uh, they've been working on prior art that's existed for fifty plus years. So they, you know, their their job is figure out how to fit something into that box as opposed to figuring out what the box should be. And that's not to say all safety people, but but a, a lot in these industries that are long established. If if uh, autonomy was completely solved today. In 20, 30 years, yeah, it'd be it'd be a lot easier for people to know how to wrap their head around it. But it's a new, rapidly evolving uh, world. If, like, let's say every level four, level five uh, company solved it tomorrow, uh, the uh, the operators who are looking at an Uber ATG vehicle and a Waymo vehicle and a Tesla vehicle would be dealing with incredibly different vehicles. Whereas almost any mechanic can look at almost every car and figure out more or less what's probably wrong with it. And that's just the the difference between the maturity of the spaces. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. 
Hold up, let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Stefan, I want to take you back a, a, a few months. And, yeah. and one of the things that, uh, you know, has been kind of a reoccurring theme on the show, and it's something that we've talked about extensively, is just kind of we all know that this kind of great mobility reckoning is 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 coming at some point in the near future. Um, you know, one of the, you know, there were really kind of two paths. I think a lot of us assumed it would be going down either companies shutting down or companies being, uh, acquired. And mm-hmm. obviously I don't want to get into any of your uh, business discussions, but you know, I, I was really surprised that you guys weren't acquired or there wasn't some kind of acquisition that took place to at least, I mean, I've talked to at least two companies that were really impressed with your team as an example. So, yeah. um, uh, so I was just kind of curious why, if you can, you know, kind of explain yeah. why that, why that aqua hire process didn't happen or if there were, uh, if there were talks, why those, uh, why those didn't, uh, why this broke down? Yeah. I mean, I, so a couple of things, um, we, like a lot of founders, I primarily bet on the upside. It'd be a bad founder if you bet on the downside. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it probably would have been better for me to have built more fire escapes. Like if we, if we had cared about partnership stuff more, we would have had easier fire escapes. If I, if I had been more of a person to make more friends in, in industry among bigger teams, there would have been more fire escapes. Instead, it was, you know, uh, we were as focused on our this specific set of the view of the world mm-hmm. really, really hard for a very long time, uh, which meant that really round fell apart sometime around like November 10, November 12, furloughed the team November 15th. And then it was, all right, full court press. What can we get done in, in 30 days before the end of the year? Yeah. Uh, so that, that hurts um, AquaHire stuff a, a fair amount. Uh, there are things that we did successfully that um, I can't talk about. That's good. But, you know, could, <laughs> yeah, could, could be figured out. Um, my my immediate concerns, and I was talking to Kirsten about this the other day, my immediate concerns was uh, I have three expecting parents. Um, I have one person who had a kid maybe two months earlier, three months earlier, just got back from paternity leave. Um, I have 10 people on visas. If you're on a visa and your company stops paying you, you have 60 days to get a paycheck from someone else or you have to leave the country. Right. So like uh, while I cared a lot about, you know, returning money to investors and, oh, how cool would it be if so-and-so gave me a million dollars to land all this stuff? I mostly cared about like, I really don't want to have uh, these pregnant people or these expectant parents who are who I care a whole lot about to not have health insurance during a pregnancy. That seems pretty fucked. <laughs> um, uh, I don't want people to have to flee the country because I did a bad job fundraising. Um, that that became the, the quick priority. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. To back up, you said uh, a, a bit ago that, yep. you know, had you maybe had more fire escapes, had you developed more relationships in the industry. And I'm wondering, how, looking back, was there even an opportunity? I mean, your team was not 
huge. So when yeah. you look at like how you spent your time and you carved up your day daily, like was there time to even do that? Um, it would have been at the sacrifice of other things. And I don't know what I would have, I, I don't know which things I would have chose over which. I um, I think another failing of mine, uh, when when Starsky was like five, five or six people, um, I was the only non-technical person. And kind of one of my thoughts was all of the, all the money should go to technical stuff. So any non-technical thing should be super limited. Um, had I done stuff like hired a CFO way earlier, hired a COO um, to take over a lot of the day-to-day running of the company, I probably could have spent more time doing partnership-y type stuff and, you know. And winding the aperture. Yeah, um, but I was, uh, if, if including some contractors, I had about 13 one-on-ones a week. Um, with people who are either direct reports or people who are quasi direct reports, uh, while doing fundraising stuff, while uh, doing blah 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 blah, and you know whatever, uh, there wasn't there wasn't an incredible amount of time to go build a partnership with this OEM or that supplier or this big autonomous team. Hmm. I mean, I, I was reading every contract Starsky signed until I don't know maybe seven months ago. Wow. Uh. You talk about, though, the hiring piece, and, and it's an area that I've been really interested in um, because it just seems like there's a lot of competition for technical people. Um, yeah. Although, as you point out, there is a real need for really good COOs and CFOs who understand this particular business as well, not just a CFO. So, what was the hiring like? I mean, you were a much smaller company. Uh, assuming you were competing for some of the same people that big, well-funded companies like Waymo and others, yeah. so what was that like? You know, throughout the throughout the history of the company, and did you notice when it got when did it get really tough? Honestly, we were higher. Like I don't, and I don't know whether this is because we were good at recruiting, whether this was uh, because we had a very particular sales pitch, a very particular competitive advantage. We tended to get most of the people we wanted. Um, now there were candidates that you know some bigger team literally offered three or four times the the cash comp to, uh, but often those would be people that we were on the fence about wanting to hire. Why were you on the fence with them? Were you, was your strategy to to not go for the superstars? Like, nope. On the superstars, we weren't that impressed with. What? Why? What uh, was? What was? Was it inter- I mean, without getting like yeah, labeling so specifically. This, so at any at every startup, there's this contingent of people who don't want to ship, right? Um, who want to keep on working on the product until it's super perfect. Mm-hmm. Which is why, like the Eric Ries lean startup thing and MVPs is such an important thing for startups. It, you know, build a build a thing that really sucks, get it out there, see if people want it. Um, so that's a but there's there's always this contingent of of people and companies who don't want to ship a product until it's perfect. In autonomy, that that contingent has been reinforced by people who have poorly defined safety concerns. Um, so a lot of the industry has a bias against ever shipping. Interesting. And like, like there was, I, I always think of this one like perception lead we talked to from a baker company. Uh, we asked him an interview question, like not, not a not like the hard interview question, one of the, you know, start with an easy one, get to a medium one, get to the hard, probably a medium interview question. Uh, 
And his response was, give me a team of 10 people in two years and I might have an idea of how to do that. Wow. And like, and the right response was, I don't know, do we really have to do that? Or is it, how can we do that more simply? Or how can we do that? Whatever. There's this, there's this bias in the industry against ever shipping. And uh, it's not actually a safety bias. It's a let's not do things. I've, I've had this weird, like since I've been talking to people about jobs, I've had this weird interaction that's happened a bunch where people from the bigger teams would be like, wow, you know, we just would not take the risk that you guys took with that on Mandron. That is so scary. You know, that's completely against what we want to do. And then I talked to them in detail about how we looked at safety stuff and how we did it and why we decided we could pull the trigger when we pulled the trigger and blah, 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 blah. And by the end, they seem to think that I want a job as a safety engineer on their team. <laughs> it, there's this, there's a, there's a, an industry-wide bias against uh, moving, which is why we haven't been super impressed by most of the people that we had talked to from some of the bigger teams. What are, what are those misperceptions of what matters in safety? You talk about safety a bit in the blog post, but. Um... Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as I talk about in the blog post, safety is like deliberately unexceptional. It's deliberately building something that always works the same way and that you can predict how it will work and how it will fail. And predicting how it will fail is really important. Uh, that's, all, that's a bit of a blow to the ego of a lot of Silicon Valley engineers who think you can build something that functionally will never fail. Whereas safety is, you know, this radar stops working in these conditions. And here's how you me- measure these conditions. And here's how you know if this radar breaks. Um, if you get really deep into safety, it's hard to be concerned about teleop latency uh, because it's just another set of things that fails. And uh, if it's failing, you're pulling over. But also if the radar fails, you're pulling over. And if the cameras fail, you're pulling over. If the drive-by wire system fails, you're pulling over. Kind of everything everything fails and you're planning all the time for everything to fail. The The thing that was really hard for us to build a culture around was that safety isn't – if you if – you, you need a safety culture where everyone can speak up if they see something wrong, but everyone has to know the right way to speak up and, and figure out if they think something's wrong. And just shouting, stop, 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 I don't like this, is, is not that. Whereas a lot, of, a lot of teams have built that type of culture. Well, I was going to say, I, I know one of your, your former competitors, Ike, just put out um, you know, their kind of big safety report mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So there seems to be at least those in the industry are starting to recognize that like safety, while not the sexiest thing in the world is at the end of the day, you know, the metric that everybody is going to be based upon. Yep. Um, while it's not sexy, it's something that do you think maybe you guys were just a little too early to the game to start talking about that stuff at the level you were. Um, so what sucks to think about is if we had, we built more features and done less with them and like gotten them less reliable and not done an unmanned run, we might have uh, been better positioned to raise around. Um, the, the problem with safety is that, yeah, it is really important. Uh, it's hard to retain that dedication to it when it's literally all of your zero points for two years. Um, and like investors just don't respond to it. I mean, like we had investors as recently as October say stuff like, wait, wait, wait. So like your system basically is Tesla autopilot. Like, why is this, why is this good? Like, yeah, the thing is ours is Tesla autopilot. You can take the person out of the vehicle from, and that, that difference, that leap is two years of work. 
Um, so you had mentioned earlier uh, about kind of some of the companies that are doing it right. And, you know, just the ones I'm aware of, obviously, there's the startups Kodiak and Ike. Um, you know, obviously, NVIDIA has been making a big push. I think they're still planning to launch their their trucking platform in 2022 or something like too that. Too simple. Yeah, too simple. Uh, Daimler, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, between the startups that are out there right now and the OEMs that have gotten into it uh, and have really started pushing more, I mean, Daimler at this point is really just talking about uh, about freight autonomy more than even consumer uh, consumer and passenger uh, autonomy at this point. So, you know, is there anybody that you're looking at saying you guys are doing it right or uh, they're on they're on a proper path? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. No, no, no. It's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. The I mean, until people get over the obsession with building the an autonomous decision maker in the middle. Yeah. Uh, everyone's going to fail. And is it, it's just, I mean, you, you talk about how, you know, all, all these different parts of the system can have, uh, you know, they can fail. Like you, you have to assume that they will fail at some point. You have to plan for that. Yep. Um, is it, is, the, is the, the, that planner part of it, that decision maker part of it, is that different from the rest of the parts of the system in that when it fails, it's hard, it's harder to, to plan for that. It's hard to, harder to know how it will fail. Uh, why, why is that different than the rest of the parts of the system? So to start off with, um, what, what was nice about Starsky's architecture was there's a whole bunch of deterministic nodes to it, uh, which were only supposed to do one thing, right? Like the lane detector, uh, the lane detection uh, model was only supposed to detect lanes. There was there is two models that did that. We could measure if it was doing it right. So it should be spitting out lane lines every so many milliseconds. Those lane lines should have uh, a difference in curvature no more different than the previous set of lane lines by some number of degrees or subdegrees or, or radians. That's all super measurable. You can, you can then build a spec around uh, what that means. And if that spec is ever failed, uh, you can issue at first a, a failed diagnostic. If that failed diagnostic descends longer, you can go into a minimal risk condition, right? It's, it's very easy to define what working is and what not working is. Uh, for, a auto- for a dynamic decision maker, a decision maker that is saying, you know, do I slow down right now or do I change lanes or do I nudge? It's really hard to actually measure what the right decisions are, uh, which makes it harder to build a, uh, safety, a safety case for. Now, there are companies that are doing things to invent whole new frameworks to measure whether or not that's safe. Uh, one way to try to measure whether or not that's safe is throw it all in simulation and see if it generally makes the right types of decisions. Um, but how much simulation? How how much simulation do you have to do until it's actually statistically relevant? Is a debatable question, right? Like I'm sure there are the people who are doing it have answers for it, but it's they're, they're answers that are debated. Uh, which all of all of which then becomes a hard, bigger issue. Uh, whereas if you just don't even touch that decision maker, if uh, what we did at Starsky is we had a you know, there was deterministic decisions being made. So if the vehicle directly ahead of us slams on its brakes, if, if object ahead of us stops being with it, stops being this far away, we slow down to make them that far away. Uh, that's, you know, that's an if this, then that decision. So we were doing stuff like that. Uh, very easy to measure whether you can do that and easy to build a safety case around. So, so in a way, I mean, what you're describing is, is essentially like sort of de- decentralizing the different parts of the stack, right? So the more that you have sort of discrete models uh, modules for 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 the most limited specific then you can measure 
whether that's working better. Whereas if you put it all together into an end-to-end thing, it's like you don't even know what's going on sometimes. And what's also neat about that from a safety culture perspective is the machine learning team that's working on the lane detection model has every right to say what those specs of, of lane detection should look like, right? And they have every right to say that we need data from the cameras every this many milliseconds. And if we get data this much slower than that, we can't possibly be safe. And, and holy shit, alarm bells. Uh, or the new cameras that we're using regularly give us data too slow. However, that machine learning person on lane detection then shouldn't really be commenting too much on, uh, on issues in the rate of change in speed because that's a controls team issue to understand. Like they, they don't have the context for it. Now, you know, in an organization like Starsky, they could go walk over and talk to the controls person and say, hey, I was in the truck the other day and it slammed on the brakes really hard and weird. Why did it do that? And the controls person could look at it and say, oh, it wasn't supposed to or, oh, yeah, it's supposed to because of this, this and that. And you can talk about it like that, but you no longer have the perception team throwing up red uh, uh, stop everything right now orders when there is a weird part of another part of the system not doing things the way that they think it should be done, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. By making it modular, you you better empower your team to make really give really smart safety feedback. Right. Which which is which is bound up in those relationships between the different. Yep. Sort of sections of the team that they're communicating clearly and, and they understand how they affect each other. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about um, your view of the trucking industry in general, because you were working with uh, truckers quite a bit, right? So that was part of your um, business model in a way was to work directly with trucking operators, correct? Yeah. So what is your view of the trucking industry now? I mean, you mentioned earlier that I think it was that automated billing was more valuable than uh, level five. Yep. Where are the opportunities in trucking right now? I mean, you just spent several years pretty deeply embedded in there. And, and you know, where are the real opportunities to make a difference in trucking right now in light of your view that, you know, getting true autonomy in trucking or any um, application is a lot harder than we realize. And we're going to be working on this for a while. In general, uh, and, and, and going and, and, and stepping a, a step back to the comment that all mobility businesses are, are in a hard spot. Uh, all mobility companies are, all mobility businesses are utilization businesses because transportation is fundamentally a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a big problem that, that's happening in a lot of startups is, Startups are incentivized to get a whole bunch of users at low margins and then jack up the prices later. And in a mobility business, you get a, you get a whole bunch of scooter users or you get a whole bunch of uh, uh, ride-sharing users and then you jack up the prices and you lose a whole bunch of scooter users and you lose a whole bunch of ride-sharing users, uh, which is why a lot of the mobility startups are seeing trouble. Uh, in trucking, trucking is very, very much a utilization business. Uh, if, if we didn't have our trucks drive something like 7,500, 8,000 miles a month, those trucks would lose money. And we learned from the regular trucking business that, uh, you know, if we made this perfect autonomous system that could only drive 3,000 miles a month, it would always lose money. Even if there was no labor cost, that would just always be a money loser. Because it's a, a utilization business, it's, it's low margin, it's high volume, and a high volume, and it's a, it's a high volume business full of, interesting emotions, which means that 
people who run trucking fleets uh, typically have about 100 problems a day. Uh, and they might have some crappy makeshift solution where they can easily solve 90 of them so that those 10 remaining problems are still things that they're getting yelled at for. And it's, you know, a driver's yelling at them because they don't know what their next load is. A shipper's yelling at them because they don't know where their truck is. There's just a lot of yelling and a lot of, you know, personal attacks. Like we had a driver in our regular fleet who didn't like something that we said and threatened to drive his truck through one of our buildings. <laughs> and like, that's not a weird thing in trucking. Um, like that's a, you know, like that physical threats are not the most uncommon. So the, 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 the problem with tech opportunities in the trucking business is that uh, trucking operators are dealing with all of these, these issues every single day. And the 90 things they know how to easily solve, if you try to reinvent that and they take a risk, um, it might be that tomorrow they're, instead of getting yelled at 10 times, they're getting yelled at 20 times. And that, that's, you know, they can't, they can't live if they're getting yelled at 20 times because the, the 10 are intense enough. Um, so as a result, the overall industry is a really hard one for tech companies to sell to. Now, there's a bunch of interesting problems in it where people just, you know, where the tech that exists is pretty, pretty awful looking and very low the expect very much below the expectations that you'd have in silicon valley but never ne nevertheless it's a hard industry to break into because you know trucking operators don't want to try some interesting thing i mean even the people on our team got annoyed when the erp's U uh, ui got changed um <clears throat> it's it's fundamentally a really hard space to sell technology to in part because of how high volume and stressful it is it's honestly sounds quite a bit like auto manufacturing hmm. and you see there also that culture clash between that tech startup culture and yep. that established what's what's worked there yep. and a big part of it is knowing you know like this is i have to make a million i have to make a million cars in the next two months yeah yeah, and and just all the all the physical complexity that goes along with that, and 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 having to just know when not to mess with certain things, right? Like yep. when you have a solved problem, and when and and just identifying, okay, where where can we actually add value here without sort of screwing up everything else or forcing them to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Yep. So so looking forward, I mean, you know, you've had a, a fascinating ride uh, through this really fascinating space and, and you've got some perspective which and really appreciate you sharing it not just with us but the blog post and with everyone Absolutely. um what like what do you see coming down the line for for mobility startups i mean obviously you know i'm guessing you're not super optimistic on this space but i'm i'm curious like where you see where are the where are the higher risk areas what are the kinds yeah. of companies or maybe the kinds of cultures or, or the things yeah. that are that are really that worry you the most we're, uh, we're, I thought you were going to go with excitement. Oh, or, uh, or, or that. Or, or, yeah, I, no. I, I, see, I see opportunity. Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah. Both, is, both is fine. Yeah, what are the... Yeah, so fundamentally, I think that robotics will thrive in places where there are labor shortages that allow for things that break a whole lot to get paid a whole lot of money. Um, and that's, that's the place to look for those to be successful. Like people whose strategy is to be the operator in a labor shortage which is part of why trucking is so uh, interesting and the incredible number of people who are willing to uh, be Uber and Lyft drivers have makes that a, a space where I'm, you know, a lot, a lot would have to go right for me to think that that's going to happen anytime soon. So that's, that's on the, the, the broader autonomous vehicle side in mobility in general. Uh, I think we're seeing a graduation from, okay, Uber can do it. Let's everyone do stuff um, to, 
all right, here are the kind of dynamics that a mobility startup has to meet to be successful. So in the meantime, we're going to lose a whole bunch of companies full of really smart, hungry people. Uh, what's going to come out of that, though, are a bunch of operators who know the actual limitations of a lot of these companies, uh, who can then, who are then going to build a, a generation of companies that might be better suited to actually survive. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic with mobility, whereas in autonomy, a lot of money's been spent. Uh, salaries are really high. Salaries aren't incredibly elastic, so a lot of those people aren't going to want thirty percent, forty percent pay cuts. Um, and 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 the autonomous space might go might be in the desert for a couple of years until it comes back to rationality. Do you think? How do you think this COVID nineteen pandemic um, is going to impact? mobility for better or for worse? I mean, do you see some potential actual opportunities that will spring out of this? Or do you think it's it? Or do you think it's more like we're going to just see a lot of companies fail? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think people want to share a lot less than they ever did before. <laughs> um, so the assumption that the future is shared is now definitely being uh, questioned a whole lot. I think there's people doing stuff around not sharing that might might work out better. Um, I think theoretically stuff like delivery bots and and robo taxis could make a whole deal of sense if they were ready right now, but but they're not. Um, I um, in terms of opportunities from COVID, uh, <clears throat> the the overused VC line that great companies are started in recessions. Maybe that's true, and maybe some great things are going to be started in the next couple of months um, that are much less crazy. And I mean, I think in general, the best tech startups are really arbitrage companies. Mm. They're not they're not pushing the frontiers of what's possible. They're taking what's possible and applying it to a business case that hasn't seen it before. the the uh, The mobility space got a little close to let's expand the realms of what's possible, which is why we're seeing what we're seeing. Uh, in the in the next twelve months, assuming that we're seeing a recession as bad or depression as bad as people are starting to talk about, the companies that exist will have to be ones that make a lot a lot of sense, which means they will be more widely practical than kind of the dreams that only work on the edge case. Hmm. Um. So you you talk about um. We we've discussed here uh, uh venture capital and their role in this and and I feel like that's really the the sort of misplaced priorities um and 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 herd mentality and all these sorts of things that that we discuss here i mean you see this repeated and i mean the micromobility boom bust cycle has been just insane too uh-huh. and and there you see you see also you know pursuing scale at all costs you see you know the idea of yeah establishing a monopoly and then jacking up prices and that's going to work and like you see these these you know same adages. So I guess my question is, you know, do you see, is VC going to change uh, and, and Silicon Valley venture capital specifically, like does there need to be another venture capital community much more focused on hardware and operations type businesses? And, and, and so we don't just have this software mindset applied to businesses where it doesn't really fit. Yeah. Is that going to change or is there so much money and, and uh, so much of a trend chasing mentality that it's just going to, no one can stop the dynamic. It has a life of its own now. I definitely am more on the camp of the dynamic has a life of its own. Um, I think, I mean, there are a lot of great VCs who think really smart things about mobility, who think uh, really smart things about robotics. Um, the problem is as you get to bigger and bigger rounds, you, 
you know, it doesn't make sense to have a $10 billion that fund that only invests in mobility companies because pretty quickly you're going to be investing against yourself. So the, I mean, I think the, the problem is uh, special, specialized VCs in the later stage of the funding rounds. Now, another outcome that might happen is that the, the VC space got, a lot of money came into the VC space after 2008. Uh, because yield disappeared on Wall Street, then yield dis- then they overinvested in consumer and SaaS, and yield disappeared there, and that's why they invest- started investing in frontier tech. It might well be that the natural cycle is for those hundred, two hundred million dollar rounds to go back to being public market rounds or or PE rounds. Um, in which case, that's probably not good for frontier tech companies, and maybe frontier tech companies have to then be based in lower cost areas so that. You know, they don't burn through a fifty million or a hundred million dollar round in two years. Oh, makes a lot of sense. Damon, uh, Stefan, uh, final question for you. Yeah. I think we might be wrapping, but um, I know it's a little too early. But uh, what's next, man? Yeah, look- <laughs> that's that's helpful. I want to do a little plug. Um, <laughs> so, largely, I'm trying to figure out what's coming next, uh, and I and I'm not not exactly sure. But something I'm going to be doing uh, part time for the next couple of months, especially with COVID is I'm going to be uh, working with uh, WeFunder to help companies survive this whole end of the world thing that's happening. Nice. So uh, at wefunder.com slash loans, uh, there's, this, there's this program where they're going to work with small businesses. Um, so that coffee shop that you love around the corner, that brewery that you're friends with the owners of, so on and so forth, so that their fans, the people in their community, can loan them money to help make it through this. And is this, is this a, sort of a... Uh, throughout the U.S. effort, global effort, yep. or this is all throughout the U.S. Okay. Um, uh, is 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 where they're uh, licensed to do stuff. Um, so it's it's loans. It will probably also be equity financing for for small businesses. And then uh, WeFunder is also doing an accelerator for companies that might help with COVID, uh, which you can see at wefunder.com/virus. So that's a while I figure out my life, uh, whether it's in in mobility or outside of, it seems like important worth work worth doing. Yeah. No, that's amazing, man. We'll definitely add that on when we when we put the um, episode out. We'll we'll provide a link to that. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm sure there's there's all kinds of. I mean, I have friends who have small businesses that are just already yep. pulling their hair out. Uh, you know, little. My cousin has a restaurant in Key West, and you know, no tourists means no Key West. Yep. Um, I'm really good friends with the guys at Standard Deviant in San Francisco, and like they just got ordered to not have people come to their brew house. They're they, they don't really do cans. They almost only do kegs. And it turns out not a lot of people are buying kegs when all the bars are closed. Right. Totally. Well, um, I, I have to say, like, I really uh, appreciate, you know, that you've turned what has to have been a really like wrenching, terrible experience into not just like, you know, the blog posts and these lessons that you're sharing with the space, which I think are really, really great, but also just this, you know, throwing yourself into something that's about helping other people. Um, it's really, I don't know, it's inspiring. So uh, thanks for thanks. Thanks for doing that. And and thanks for making the time for, for us. Uh, it's been a, a really fantastic conversation. And um, Absolutely. Guys. So to end, um, Stefan, maybe you can say what happened to all your former employees. <laughs> um, so a bunch of them are now uh, sprinkled around the autonomous industry. Um, awesome. The, uh, a couple have deliberately left the autonomous industry. Uh, the, uh, the truck drivers, uh, well, I mean, what's good is I'm pretty sure COVID just ended the, the 18 month long trucking recession. 
by needing all drivers on deck to get stuff moved around. So most of them are probably okay. Um, some of our some of our uh, trucking office people are still looking for jobs, and uh, I know our biz ops person uh, is as well, and they're all fantastic. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm happy to help them find jobs. Cool. And, and where can where can people? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, Twitter at Stefan Esi. Great. Well, Stefan, thanks so much. Uh, this has been again just a, a really fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, we wish you all the best, and uh, I'm sure we'll be we'll be talking more.